Hello, and welcome to Highland and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Today is Friday, October 15th. Welcome to episode 48. We're excited to have New York Times bestselling author and biographer of the stars, Scott Iman, returning to the show. His new book, 20th Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck and the Creation of the Modern Film Studio, was just published by Turner Classic Movies and is the story of one of the most influential studios in film history. From its glory days under the leadership of legendary mogul Daryl Zanuck up to the 2019 buyout by Disney. Well, we love anything connected to Turner Classic Movies and are already looking forward to our next Movies of the Decade events at the historic Roxy Theater when we'll get to hear from our friend and former guest, Jeremy Arnold. Be at the Roxy Saturday, October 23rd at 6.30 p.m. for Moulin Rouge, starring Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. This will be Jeremy's final intro for the series, so get your tickets now at roxybremerton.org. And just a block or so away from the Bremerton Roxy is another establishment Matt and I like to frequent, Remedy Speakeasy, an employee-owned bar and restaurant inspired by the 1920s speakeasy culture. On this week's episode of In the Mix, we met up with owner Allison Crow for a round of Mary Pickford's, a delicious Prohibition-era rum-based cocktail, and some trivia about Pickford, her influence on Hollywood history, and her historic love affair with Douglas Fairbanks. Check it out now on our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. And speaking of love affairs, opening this evening at Western Washington Center for the Arts, A.R. Gurney's Pulitzer Prize-winning two-person show, Love Letters, directed by our friend Dan Estes and featuring a rotating cast of six, Love Letters is a nuanced examination of shared nostalgia, missed opportunities, and deep closeness between two friends, Andy and Melissa, over the course of 50 years. I'll be playing Andy on October 17th, 23rd, and 29th, but whatever show you choose, we know you'll enjoy this funny and tender show. Tickets can be found at www.ca.us, and thanks for supporting WWCA. And now we're pleased to welcome a gentleman who knows just a little thing or two about famous actors. Scott Iman is the biographer of the stars like John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and Henry Fonda. Ernst Lubitsch, John Ford, Cecil B. DeMille, and he joined us back in May for episode 28 to celebrate the release of his last book, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. Scott's latest work, 20th Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck and the Creation of the Modern Film Studios, comes to us from Turner Classic Movies and examines one of the preeminent producers of films, filmmakers, and stars for almost 85 years, focusing on the man most responsible, producer and movie mogul, Daryl F. Zanuck. Scott is a prolific author, with three of his books being New York Times bestsellers. He has been awarded the William K. Everson Award for Film History by the National Board of Review, and he teaches film history at the University of Miami. Scott joins us from his home in West Palm Beach. Welcome back to the show, Scott. Glad to be here. Oh, glad to have you. So you've profiled several other lions of Hollywood, to borrow from the title of your book about Louis B. Mayer, actually. Uh, when did you first become interested in Daryl Zanuck or 20th Century Fox, if you can separate the two? How did the story come about? I was always interested in Daryl Zanuck. When I was a kid, I liked his films a lot. I liked his films when he was a production head at Warner's, Public Enemy, Little Caesar, uh, those wonderful pictures he made with Bill Wellman, Wild Boys of the Road, that, th- those pre-code, uh, pre-code pictures where a woman was as liable to get a grapefruit shoved in her face as uh, a champagne glass. <laughs> and, I, I, and then I was interested also in how he completely reinvented himself when he, when he left at the Warner's and, and went to first his own independent company, 20th Century, and then when he merged with Fox, he didn't try to replicate what he'd been doing at Warner Brothers, which is the kind of default position, you know, for any uh, successful producer. They try to transpose what they're doing from place to place. 
And he didn't do that. He didn't even attempt to do that. He really didn't start making any equivalent pictures until after World War II with uh, 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 Kiss of Death and Cry of the City and, and those pictures, those, those noirs he was making with Henry Hathaway and Jules Dassin. But uh, he completely reinvented himself. And I thought, well, that's nimble and that's interesting. And uh, I liked both sets of pictures, both the pictures he was making at Warner's in the early 30s and the noirs he made at Fox in, in the 20s, in the, in the 40s rather. And in between that, he completely reinvented himself and he completely reinvented 20th Century Fox to a great extent. So he was unusually emotionally and intellectually nimble for a studio head. Because if you look at the first generation of moguls and the second generation of moguls from Louis B. Mayer to David Selznick to Sam Goldwyn, they were all basically locked into doing one thing. Uh, Louis B. Mayer was helpless uh, after leaving MGM. He never made another movie. David O. Selznick could only make David Selznick pictures. Goldwyn could only make Goldwyn pictures. There was no uh, particular versatility in their skill set. Zanuck could shuffle the deck, and no matter what cards were dealt him, he could come up with a successful uh, uh, motion picture or a successful formula for a motion picture, even if it didn't seem to be uh, his particular uh, uh, skill set. So I found that very interesting. You mentioned the, the pre-code films, and he had the, I guess, was the most successful independent studio before coming over to Fox with uh, 20th Century how did he make the transition from pre-code to code? I mean, he, obviously, reading through your book, you mentioned uh, a few places where he had issue, some issues or challenges with uh, uh, the production code folks. But how was that transition from pre-code to having to be a little more strict with his films? Well, it was less a matter of censorship because he, he adapted fairly well to the strictures of uh, the Green Office or the Hayes Office, if you will. What was different was his personnel, because he even if he wanted to do at Fox, 20th Century Fox, what he'd been doing at Warner's, he couldn't do it because when he went over to Fox in, 20, in 1935, they had Warner Baxter, they had Shirley Temple and Will Rogers. But Will Rogers was about to die in a plane crash. So he didn't really have Will Rogers. So there was a there was no way you're going to make a series of noirs with Shirley Temple and or Warner Baxter. It was a really limited group of roster of players. So but he didn't even try really. Uh, uh, to do freelance versions of, of, of uh, the pre-code films. He simply went in a different direction. He, he developed a matinee idol, Tyrone Power, out of nothing, which was his only really huge major star that he created, uh, a male star. Of course, he had Alice Faye and, and Betty Grable on the distaff side, as well as Linda Darnell and a few others. Uh, he had more luck with uh, women uh, uh, actresses than he did with male actors, actually. So it was less a matter, he didn't, he, he wasn't affected over much by external forces. Uh, he, he, would, he was like a, uh, a quarterback who could read the, uh, read the defense and work around it. I'm curious how much his, or you, you say his, his background would play into that, seeing as he had a somewhat tumultuous uh, youth, uh, abandoned by his parents, young, went to World War I, fought in World War I, came back, wanted to do some writing, started writing some very successful plots um, for things like Rin Tin Tin, etc. Do you think that kind of upbringing just played into some of the flexibility that he was able to um, you know, use later on when it came to running these different studios and, and going different directions like that? I don't see how it could have done anything but help him. Also, you have to overlook one great uh, motivating factor. He didn't have any money. He was poor. In this, he was absolutely in line with the Warner Brothers and, and Louis B. Mayer and, and that whole generation. I mean, they got out of Russia, you know, one step ahead of the Cossacks 
So they had all the motivation in the world to come to America. Zanuck was born in Nebraska, but he was still poor and he still had to accumulate uh, some some kind of financial and psychological foundation beneath him. And he was a storyteller. He, you could tell from those uh, early things he's writing when he's a teenager on a train that he's always transposing everything he sees into narrative, into a story, into a saga. And like many uh, uh, creative people, he put himself at the center of his stories or his vision of himself in variations on his own character. You know, can-do guys like Spencer Tracy and Stanley and Livingston, that kind of thing. People who didn't take no for an answer. So, so he, was, he was of his generation and he was also a throwback to the earlier generation, founding generation of moguls. But I don't think he was ever overstressed by external circumstances until the 1950s came along. And I think, frankly, if he'd been younger, it wouldn't, that wouldn't have stressed him either. But he'd been working 70 and 80 hour weeks for, for uh, 25 years at that point, and he had just hit the wall. You had talked about uh, some of the differences in, in studios a little bit in your, in your book. You mentioned how each of the major studios, Warner Brothers, Paramount, all seem to gravitate towards a certain niche. Mm -hmm. uh, and, they, and they kind of stay in, in that niche. But Zanuck kind of was a little more flexible. But I want to go back to why the studios felt like they, or did they feel like they had to be in a niche? Or was it just, that's that was their strong suits and that's just what they stuck with? I think it was a, a version of what we today would call branding. Uh, you could tell a Paramount picture from the look. It was very gauzy, very soft focus. You could tell an MGM picture from the look. All that light coming, white light coming in from the top of the set. And the fact that they didn't use, the, the sets were very creamy and, and uh uh, pale, uh, uh, pale, cream-colored. Uh, Warner's is sooty, you know, and and hard-edged. Warner's is, I mean, uh, Rakeo is also hard-edged. Uh, but each of them had a look. The, the the soundtracks, the musical soundtracks, had a specific sound. An MGM soundtrack was very faint, unless it was a musical. You know, you could barely hear it sometimes because Mayer didn't particularly like music in his movies. Jack Warner blasted the soundtrack at you. It was a symphony by Max Steiner or Eric Wolfgang Korngold with accompanying visuals. Uh, so I, I don't think this was necessarily a conscious thing they were doing to differentiate their studio from the other guys' studios. I think it was a function of their merchant mentality. You know, if you're running a department store and there's another store two or three blocks down, you've got to sell something different. You can't sell the same merchandise at the same price. You've got to undercut them on price or you've got to have an entirely different product line. So I think they were thinking in mercantile terms. Well, that actually brings us to innovation and, and risk-taking. We talked about his flexibility and uh, interest in, in finding that solid footing for himself. But he was also a risk-taker, uh, shepherding in talkies with uh, the jazz singer, etc. Uh, banking on technology and innovation, knowing that there could be a huge downside, especially financially, what was it about Zanuck that made him that kind of risk-taker? Well, uh, the jazz singer and sound was more a function of, of uh, Sam Warner and the peculiar dichotomy of the, of the brothers than it was Zanuck. Uh, he hadn't yet taken production head responsibilities at that point. It came a year later. But his, his, uh, his fearlessness really comes into play with Cinemascope in the early 1950s because he basically he felt the industry's back was against the wall. Between 1946 and 1953, 54, box office declines by over 40%, close to 50%. Wow. That's an extinction event. That's like what's happened with newspapers and magazines. It's an extinction event. If you can't come up with 
uh, something to get the audience back in the theaters, you're out of business in another five, 10 years. So he, uh, uh, he was very aggressive by instinct. He was aggressive with writers. He was aggressive with stories. He was aggressive with certain directors, uh, with artists like John Ford or Ernst Lubitsch. He let them be who they were because he knew that uh, you have to let a real artist alone. But he realized that something had to be done. So he bet it all on coming up with some variation on Cinerama out of one lens, which the whole industry was trying to get. Uh, because this is Cinerama had had such a huge impact at the box office, not because of what it was, but because of how it was presented. You know, it was just a series of shorts. It was a James Fitzpatrick, a series of James Fitzpatrick shorts projected at 160 degrees, uh, circular and uh, immersion, immersive technology. Uh, and people lined up to see these, these but were essentially cheesy travelogues in this brilliant new produ uh, production process. So nobody wanted to do another Cinerama because it was extremely expensive and it was hard to make any money because the overhead was so high because you had to rehab the theaters. You had to cut, uh, lose a lot of seats to make room for the screens. You had to install four projection booths, three for the films and one for the soundtrack. It was an expensive operation to run. So the gross was high, but the net was not high. So everybody's looking for the same equivalent effect with one projector, preferably the same projectors they've already got. So he came up with the idea of the, using this lens that had been invented, you know, 30 years earlier, almost 30 years earlier, uh, in, in the wake of Abel Gantz's Napoleon. And they bought it and spent about $10 million uh, uh, developing it and rushing it into the production, uh, even though, and this was the real gamble, even though it had, the patent in Europe had expired and it had never been patented at all in America which meant that all anybody had to do was get their hands on a lens, take it apart and figure out how it was done and do a knockoff version. And they could go ahead and do it and they couldn't, and there was nothing Fox could do to stop them. So the, the lenses had to be guarded like with police, armed guards, so that nobody could steal one of the lenses and do a knockoff. Well, reverse engineering, huh? <laughs> that totally reverse engineering or avoid reverse engineering. Yeah. So, because and he, he thought that 3D was a fad and pointless and it, did, it wouldn't work. And it, indeed, it has turned out to be a fad every time it's been introduced. In my lifetime, it's been introduced. Time and again, four. yeah. And it's failed every time, ultimately, because it's a gimmick. It doesn't really add anything to the movie. Although there were a couple of exceptions with the last iteration. I thought gravity was an interesting use of 3D. But he understood that something had to be done, that the industry had to, had to throw aside conventional wisdom and roll the dice. And that's what he did, and it worked. It was a short-term solution, but it stopped the bleeding, which was a basically, it was triage. He was doing triage and it worked. Uh, by 1960, the thrill had gone and everybody had, and there were all these competing widescreen processes by people who had gotten their hands on the lenses and taken it apart and said, well, that's okay, but we can do it better if we do it this way. And indeed the later iterations, knockoffs of CinemaScope were superior to CinemaScope. But by that time, uh, the industry had stabilized. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about fads and things like that. I mean, Walt Disney had a couple of things with the multiplane camera, things like sure. that to change uh, the way things were done. Technorama. Yeah, and it, but it's not just coming up with the idea. You have, to, you have to do it intelligently, too, because otherwise you could bleed a lot, like you were saying, you bleed a lot of money, or right. maybe it's got not the right time. But it, it seems like CinemaScope came at the right time when it had to to help save, you know, save the industry, really. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it was the tail wagging the dog, because if you look at the robe and if you look at uh, 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 there's no business like show business, those early CinemaScope films, there's nothing special about them as movies. 
divorced from the process. It was the process that people were coming to see and the immersion in the color and the stereophonic sound and, and the technical aspects of the film. The movies themselves as scripts, as direction are nothing special, but that wasn't the point and he understood that wasn't the point. When it came to the actual day-to-day making of the films, you, you talk about Zanuck's ability to know when a scene, an individual scene itself, was losing steam. Was he hands-on all the time with, with most of the big films that came through 20th Century Fox or just certain ones that he paid special attention to? He was hands-on with the A pictures. He was hands-on with uh, the expensive pictures. He was hands-on with anything that said Daryl F. Zanuck Presents. If it said 20th Century Fox Presents, if it was a B picture, no, he didn't pay any attention to it. Saul Wurzel uh, had uh, uh, ran the B picture operation, and he simply he didn't care because the B pictures were there for one reason, well, two reasons. They were there to soak up studio overhead, and if hopeful to, to eke out a profit per picture, ten thousand, twenty thousand uh, a piece cumulatively over the season, over a year, it would return. The B pictures could return a fair amount of money, but after World War II, that disappeared as the audience uh, uh, began getting leached away. And then television arrives with both feet and, t- and B pictures are absolutely wiped out until they're reinvented for the drive-in by American International and companies like that. But he uh, paid strict attention to all the A pictures, any, any major star, Tyrone Power, Linda Darnell, uh, the major directors, Lubitsch, Ford, Mankiewicz. Uh, he hovered ceaselessly over the scripts. He hovered over the production. That said, he would let as I said, he would let John Ford be John Ford and hire and Ernst Lubitsch be Ernst Lubitsch because you can't hire people like that and then try to fit them into a mold because they're not mold filmmakers. They're filmmakers who create their own mold and you have to respect that. And he understood that. He understood that. So he basically left Ford alone except for tiny little things like uh, My Darling Clementine where Ford had ended the film without Wyatt Earp kissing Clementine. He had had, and so he called back, uh, Zanuck called back for retake and Fonda pecks her on the cheek, (laughs) which of course irritated Ford, but it's not a big deal in the overall context of the movie. When you talk about A and B pictures, now I think of uh, the studio system where if my research has served me correctly, uh, in order to show an A film, you had to also agree to show the B films as well, right? So they're almost theaters were contractually obligated to show these B films, regardless of how good they were? Well, it, it, double, it, basically they were a function of the Depression. When the Depression hit lands with both feet in 1931-32, the industry realizes that, how do we fight this? Well, they fought it by giving people something extra. They, they started making two pictures for the price of one, essentially. And the double feature became ubiquitous. But on the other hand, they would always bracket uh, an A picture with a cheaper B picture for financial reasons, because the B pictures were basically distributed for flat fees. You'd pay 20 bucks a a day or 50 bucks a day or whatever the going rate was. Whereas the A picture was on a rental, was a strict rental item. So, but because the B picture was a flat fee, there was really no advantage to making them really good because you wouldn't really make any more money if the picture was good than it would if the picture was totally mediocre because they knew looking at the previous three or four Charlie Chan pictures, what they would gross. So the ne- the fifth Charlie Chan picture was gonna gross within the same, give or take five grand or 10 grand. That's just reasonable. That's business one-on-one. So all those B pictures at Fox were, were kind of, once they've established a groove, whether it was the Michael Shane pictures with uh, uh, Lloyd Nolan or the Charlie Chans with Warner Olin, 
and then after he died, uh, uh, Sidney Toler. Uh, they're all on an equivalent level. They're watchable. But what sets the Fox Bees apart from other studios Bees is they're just a little bit better. They're faster. They're not as dull as some of the other Bee pictures from say Paramount or MGM. And I, I detect that, I, I, I ascribe that to basically a kind of uh, a, a washover effect from uh, a Wurzel being paranoid about the Zanuck landing on him with both feet. Because William Fox had spent 15 years landing on poor Saul Wurzel with both feet. And then Fox is uh, loses control of the studio through bankruptcy. And Zanuck comes in and Zanuck basically says, here's your, here's your keys to the Western Avenue studio. Make, you know, these are the pictures you got to make. And I'll see you at the end of the year and for a banquet or something, you know. Wurzel had a lot of uh, 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 autonomy in making those B pictures, as long as they were made for a price. Hmm. Uh, something you just said reminded me of uh, the way that you tied, in your intro, you tied the work of Zanuck and Fox as well, uh, right up to today with the 2018 takeover uh, by Disney. Mm -hmm. And consolidation seems to be the name of the game. And something that I really enjoyed was the fact that you said Fox and Zanuck probably wouldn't be surprised. They would have been surprised that it was purchased by Disney because Disney yeah. was boutique at the time. They're not boutique anymore. No. And, you know, what can what can Disney do um, at this point or allow Legacy Fox to keep doing to keep storytelling uh, like Zanuck did alive? I, I think Disney bought Fox for streaming reasons. I think it gave them a huge a volume of content for Disney Plus and whatever other services they might start down the road. And it also gave them a huge volume of material uh, for remakes, as with Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, which is coming out in a couple months, mm -hmm. uh, which has caused people to perk up and take a look at the uh, Tyrone Power version from 1947, as they should. It's a good picture. Uh, although Zanuck didn't want to make it, it was drag kicking and screaming into making it uh, <laughs> because Tyrone Power had been a, a, a good company man for 10 years at that point and had done everything Zanuck had asked him to do, even when he didn't want to do it. So Zanuck owed him one and Zanuck knew he owed him one. So he let it go ahead and, and make it. That said, Power loved making the picture and he was proud of it as he should have been. Uh, but I don't know that the, the lessons of Daryl Zanuck's Fox are applicable in the 21st century. Hmm. Zanuck would have been stunned at Disney's purchases, as you mentioned, of the studio, because Disney, in that era that he was aware of Disney, uh, put out an animated feature every three or four years and a series of shorts and, and maybe three or four live action pictures a year. And that was it. Yeah. You know, uh, there was not a lot of production. Uh, it was a boutique studio. But uh, Zanuck also understood that corporations get senile, just like people do. And Fox had been on the verge of senility uh, before he took it over and gave it an injection of youthful energy and optimism. And that was no longer the case in the 21st century. Uh, the studio was kind of noodling along in second gear, somewhere between second and third gear, but they certainly weren't burning anything up. I don't think the other studios were scared of them. I think the other studios were all scared of, uh, of uh, 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 China and how do we compete in, this, in, in the streaming world, you know? So it was a, I think it was a, a library play and I think it was a, 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 a remake play. And you'll see a lot of stuff popping up down the road on television, on channels, on, on, on one channel or another, and in films that derive from the, from, the, from the Fox purchase. Hopefully, hopefully those remakes or replays will, like you said, send people back to some of these originals. That, that would be one, one 
positive, oh, sure. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why Nightmare Alley, the original, is in, is in what amounts to it. I'm sure more people are seeing it now than saw it in 1947, mm-hmm. you know, because Criterion put it out on Blu-ray. The Fox Movie Channel runs it. Uh, uh, TCM runs it. Everybody's suddenly running Nightmare Alley. You had mentioned the uh, going on the Disney thing. A lot of that was, I think, some of the acquisitions Fox had made for distribution overseas as well. Um, mm. that Disney was trying to get. So yeah, for that streaming part, the one thing I've noticed is all of the old Fox movies that are showing up on Disney Plus, which is giving them, you know, some new visibility, which is not bad. Uh, sure. One of them uh, being, well, no, actually not on Disney Plus, uh, but Ford versus Ferrari, you cited in your book as maybe, uh, as kind of the last film of the old 20th century Fox studio pre-merger with Disney yeah. and something that Zanuck would have been possibly proud of. I thought it, I thought that film, which I didn't expect. To, I mean, I had no expectations of it. And I'm not I mean, I'm a car guy up to a point, but I know nothing about Formula One. I thought it incarnated a lot of Xanax virtues in, an, in a surprisingly adept updating to the 21st century, because essentially, if you boil it down, it's a love story between two men, just like a lot of Xanax films. It's these two guys and they settle everything with a fist fight, just like in a, in a medium range John Ford film. Uh, so it's got these basic movie tropes that I don't believe actually happened for a minute, I might add. But it's got these basic movie tropes that we've been incarnated and inculcated with over the last 120 years. Uh, this is the way this is the way uh, uh, alpha males settle their issues. They punch it out and then their brothers under the skin, you know, <laughs> uh, that thing. And if it was done, if it was if it's not done really well, it's corny as hell. And you and you and you snicker at it. But. Mangold and his cast managed to sell it because the backdrop is unfamiliar and it's it's very masculine and it's very alpha. At the same time, it makes enough gestures towards uh, uh, these guys' uh, emotional bonds with their women so that we accept them. You know, we're, we're not put off by them, even though they're classic alpha males. Uh, and I thought it, it incarnated a lot of Zanuck's storytelling virtues because Zanuck was also a car guy. He made a movie called The Racers with uh, Bella Darby, one of his uh, disastrous mistresses that he tried to uh, pump into being a movie star. Uh, and poor Kirk Douglas had to take the fall to work with her. Uh, and that was about uh, uh, Formula One in 1955, the Formula version of 1955 version of Formula One. So I'm sure Zanuck would have gotten a kick out of the movie because Fox and Mangold made a much better Formula One movie than Zanuck did. <laughs> and, he would have been the, and he would have been the first to recognize <laughs> it's it's good. I really like it. It's one of those that is in my library of when I'm going around the channels and I see it on, I just stop there and watch yeah. it. I've probably seen it in some incarnation, probably over 10 times already. So, uh, so Scott, is this your first collaboration with TCM Press? Yes. What was it like to work with them compared to maybe some of your other uh, publishers? I worked with the editor. I, I, TCM really never came into it. Uh, <laughs> unless there's something going on I didn't know about. <laughs> uh, because we, I had talked with, with the editor, oh God, five, six years ago at a TCM film festival. And, and she talked about, you know, how much she liked my books and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, that's fine. And, and, you know, I filed it away like uh, uh, greedy writers always do. Uh, but I was booked very heavily uh, for the near future between, uh, I think it already started on Gary Grant at that point. And there was another, and, and Hank and Jim, I think was in process was I'd done, I'd finished Hank and Jim, but it, I was still working on some smaller aspects of it. And Cary Grant was looming up. So I was backed up, you know, but once I th- finished those, 
uh, I got back in touch with Cindy at Running Press, and uh, uh, it was very, it was a very smooth partnership, very smooth partnership, you know, because she's been doing this a while, and I've been doing this a while. Uh, one of our favorite guests uh, is Jeremy Arnold, who's done several books with sure. TCM, and we've we've loved speaking with authors on this program. And one of the, ch- the biggest challenges that we've heard come up for biographers is oftentimes finding firsthand accounts and history to draw from. Now, there seems to be no shortage uh, for Zanuck, but uh, where, did you run into any roadblocks? Are there any trouble uh, getting any information for this book? The only roadblocks was the pandemic, because all the libraries were closed. So... What I had to do was draw on my own files, uh, stuff that I'd gotten from pre- previous research in libraries. And I called on for other, other authors I know who had done research on other people for uh, stuff that they might have, you know? And, and uh, my friend Al Rohde and a number of other people came through for me. Uh, otherwise it would have been a much thinner book. Uh, but I, there, I had to be, uh, I had to uh, be dexterous in my uh, juggling of sources because you know, I wasn't able to, my, my, I, I, neither I nor my researcher, Will Coates, were able to spend, you know, months uh, at the Academy Library or USC, which was a problem, uh, a conceptual problem. I just had to figure workarounds. So majority of your research is still done old school in a library, is it what it sounds like? Well, to a great extent, because uh, there's fewer people to talk to about the period that I like to write about, which is essentially the studio era, which more or less ends in the 60s. So, and there are less and less people to talk to realistically. So, you know, you use, you're using libraries more and, and oral histories and things like that. And I thought, I knew this was coming, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, you could see it coming. And I thought, well, how am I going to get to get around this? And well, you know, people are still writing books about the civil war yeah. <laughs> and, and world war two. And there's no one to talk to about right. the civil war. You know, it's, it's a question of, of sifting the evidence and finding new, uh, new research material. And there's always more new stuff slowly working its way to the surface, like Cecil B. DeMille's Lost Egypt in the Sands of the Desert in uh, California. Hmm. Well, the book is called 20th Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck, and the Creation of the Modern Film Studio. Um, our guest has been Scott Iman. Scott, it's been great to talk to you again. As always, what's, what's up next for you other than the press junket for, <laughs> for the uh, current book? I'm working on a project that'll probably be out in 2024, maybe 23. It depends. It's a book about Charlie Chaplin, kind of focused, narrowly focused book about certain aspects of Charlie Chaplin's uh, 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 incredibly dramatic life. I'll look forward to that. This has been a this has been a great interview. Thank you so much for your time today, Scott. Uh, we enjoyed the book, and uh, hope everybody will race out and pick up a copy. Uh, we appreciate you sharing a little behind the scenes on how it was compiled today. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Happy to do it. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you again to our guest, Scott Iman. His new book, 20th Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck and the Creation of the Modern Film Studio, is available now in hardcover, audiobook, and Kindle formats. Everywhere fine books are sold. And if you enjoy the show, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. Tell them to visit HeilmanandHaver.com and tune in on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Keep up with all the latest on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and check out special segments like In the Mix and Get to Know a Theater on YouTube. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us here on Heilman and Haver. 